I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book. I recently had an opportunity to talk to the glorious Ann Patchett. We talked about her latest bestseller, Commonwealth, which is another one of her fantastic books, one that she describes as her most personal. And we also talked to her about being a bookseller. And lastly, all this month, we're participating in a movement called Tripod. Tell a friend, your mom, anyone about a podcast they'd really love. Let us know what podcast you're sharing on social media by using the hashtag Tri-Pod. That's T-R-Y-P-O-D. Thanks for spreading the word. But first, my interview with Ann Patchett. She was named Time Magazine's one of the 100 most influential people in the world. Welcome, Anne. Thank you, <laughs> For being a bookseller, that's what always cracks me up about that award, because I have to say, you know, it wasn't for being a novelist. It was, I was influential for being a bookseller. Isn't that fascinating? It is. In a strip mall next to Sherwin-Williams Paint in Nashville, Tennessee. That makes me one of the most hundred influential people in the world. I really picture the editors of Time Magazine sitting around in a room with a list of 99 people and going, okay, we need one more, (laughs) one more. So, Anne, you know, this wasn't how I was going to uh, start the interview, but you bringing that up, I don't think it was one more, it was one more, but why do you think... Time magazine picked that element to make it the most influential? Because I do think it says something interesting. My sense of it at the time was it was the combination. Yeah, you know, I think that what it was, especially in 2012, it was just such a feel-good story Mm. that uh, Karen and I were opening Parnassus and you know, the the narrative was bookstores are closing, bookstores are dead, books are dead. It's all ebook from here on out, people. And then we opened this store, and I just think that it became such a media sensation because it was good news. Mm. Uh, it was at the end of the recession. Bookstores were were really badly beaten down, and you know, we just happened to ride the wave to their triumphant return. Um, but we were we were the right store at the right time. Well, and I do think that you've given voice to independent booksellers in a way that's been great for all of us. I mean, I just think having someone of your stature and accomplishment and eloquence when you're out there talking about it has made people pay attention to them in different ways than, you know, the rest of us that had been talking about it, but not quite either in the right way or with the right platform. And that's really interesting. And boy, did I not have any idea that that was going to be part of my job yeah. when, <laughs> uh, when I decided to jump into all of this. But I do think that there are certain things that if you say them as a very influential bookstore owner, you know, don't shop on Amazon, support your local community, support your local tax base. You know, if you want if you want something in your community, it's your responsibility to take care of it. It doesn't sound great coming from the bookstore owner. Mm-hmm. It and sounds somehow, self-serving. When it comes from me, people think it's really charming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> And, and 
and people are a little scared of me. Yeah, uh, which and is good. They, they clap and they nod, and and you know, I always say it's your hardware store, it's your gardening store, it's your pharmacy. If there's a little business in your town and you like it, but you decide to buy your cotton balls on Amazon, you know what? It's going to go away, and that's your choice. It's not Amazon's choice. So. Um, I, I'm not exactly sure how it is that um, I was assigned the divine authority to, to say all it's of It's working for us, Anne. It's working. I'd keep, I'd keep the job up. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I believe it, and I enjoy it, and somebody's got to say it, and for some reason, it seems to be me. Yeah. Well, and, and you do a good job at it, Anne. I mean, I, I really think you do. I, I know from... Uh, from the beginning, that wasn't what you thought would be part of the assignment. Uh, but No, I, I thought I was just buying a bookstore. I mean, I, I thought that I was going to write a check and go home and go back to work. Um, ha. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to come back to the bookstore, okay. but I'd like to spend uh, a few minutes talking about your newest, delicious, incredible, smart book by the name of Commonwealth. Thank you. That... Uh, just so resembles what I think so many people are dealing with. So to give everybody a bit of background, uh, we've got 11 characters, a couple of sets of parents, a bunch of kids, and a span of 50 years. So you really get to see the arc of cause and effect and what looks like it's true isn't true. And the thing that I'm uh, struck by... And you've mentioned in some interviews that this was your most personal novel. Mm-hmm. How did who your family was or how you were brought up impact how you wrote this book? Well, it's a book about um, a man and a woman who meet at a party, and they're both married to other people. One has four children, one has two children. And they leave their marriages and run off together, and then they have six children, and they move to the other side of the country. Um, my mother and father had two children, two girls. Uh, my mother met someone with four children, two boys and two mm. girls. They struck up a relationship. They went to the other side of the country. You know, it's, so you wouldn't have to do a lot of investigative reporting <laughs> to figure out that this really is the structure of my family. Now, the things that happened to those people didn't happen to us. Um, The specifics are not true, but certainly the emotional content is very true. Or as my mother likes to say, um, none of it happened and all of it's true. So, Anne, do any of your siblings, have any people in your family taken umbrage with with, which what they decided was in fact a depiction of them? Well, I talked to everybody all the principal players I talked to when I was first starting the book, when I was halfway through, when I was finished, when I finished, I made copies for everybody. I gave everybody a copy. And I was very upfront about what I was doing. And the thing is this, I've been very, very conscientious to not write about my family mm-hmm. and my life. Not that there was anything scandalous or particularly unusual about it, but I didn't want to encroach on anyone else's story. When I wrote This is the Story of a Happy Marriage, which was a nonfiction book. Which I loved. Thank you. And parts of my family really were in that book, and no one seemed to care. And so I thought, 
maybe I've been spending my whole professional life avoiding avoiding something when nobody cares. So, you know, I talked to everybody and I said, I, at this point in my life, um, and I was in my, I'm 53 now. So, you know, I was in probably my late 40s, 49 or something like that when I started writing this book. And I said, at now I want to have full access to my life. I don't want to cut myself off from part of my life. And that means I'm also going to be talking about some aspects of your lives because we overlap. But you know what? I'm entitled at this point. You you earned that. I've been really good for a really long time. And I just said, you know, as an artist, I I want to grow past this stuff. And really, everybody was great as I knew they would be. Everybody was just fine and very supportive. And, and the thing that I thought you did, and I have many friends who are in second marriages who who or whose parents are in subsequent marriages. And one of the things that I imagine you're hearing from people is you you know the the beauty of your writing to me has always been that it feels like it authentically represents whatever you're talking about, that you manage to make it informal and accessible in a way which reinforces its universality. And here, I think there isn't as much as we would think, given divorce rates, about these blended families and the complications, how you feel about a step-sibling or a stepmother or a stepfather or all of those things. Have you heard from a lot of people about that from this book? Um, I have. And in fact, I was talking to a woman uh, this morning that I do a lot of charity work with. And it turns out we were the same age and she was telling me about her family of three and the parents got divorced and they married somebody else with three kids. And she said the moment in the book that I had to just put the book down and walk away for a little while was some moment where it says the children didn't hate each other. They didn't resent each other. There was no infighting between them because they hated the parents so much. And they were completely united in that. And she said, it just sort of sucked me back mm. into that exact moment of my own childhood. And it was true with my step-siblings. You know, we just hated the parents. Um, and I think that a, a lot of it is that, you know, this isn't a terrible act. This isn't a, a soul-destroying divorce. It just makes life that much more complicated. Yeah. And that's something that I wasn't seeing. When I read books about divorce, it's like somebody with one kid marrying somebody with no kids. Um, and then that next, uh, that next marriage is a happy one and everybody stays together. And I think, oh, no, it's really no, that's not like that. That's not it. It's just so messy and not bad, not violent, not hideous, not terrible, just just so complicated. Yeah. But I think that in the way you have the siblings uh, communicate feels from what I watch very real where it doesn't seem like, oh, my goodness, their lives have been destroyed. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to give away um, anything in the book. But it is just like if you have a broken leg. It's something that you have to incorporate in how you function. Right. Now, one of the scenes in the book, Anne, that I was most struck by was with Fix. Oh, it's Franny who's taken her father to chemotherapy? Right. Yeah. And 
there's a line there about wanting to know their past and understanding how what their take is on things that happened that you might want answers to. And the character says, no, I want to know who he is now. Mm-hmm. And I think as I watch people losing their parents, this dichotomy of wanting an explanation for their lives as opposed to connecting with them at the moment. How did you come to that scene and think about that? Well, my father was dying while I was writing this novel. Mm -hmm. And uh, my father was always very interested in my work, very involved. Whenever I wrote a short story or an article, I would send it to him. When I finished a novel, I would send him the manuscript and he would mark it up. He loved to fact check. He was a cop and um, he just really enjoyed any kind of research assignment that I would give him. Um, But my father never wanted to talk about anything personal. And I knew that he would hate this book. And I knew that I was writing this book because he was never going to read it. Um, And I say that even though the character of the father really isn't my father and does things my father never would have done, but I just had this incredible awareness that these conversations were the last conversations, that I was exhausted by the conversations and his death because my father was someone who had three months to live for four years. And I think so many people have had that experience where you just keep thinking, well, this is the end, this is the last, and and then it goes on for years after that. Um, And so you just kind of keep circling back around, and you think, I've heard this story, but wait, no, I haven't heard that part of the story. And there's always this very poignant awareness of, you better get it now, because it's it's not going to be around. And then, in fact, it is still around, you know, so you're... You're both sentimental and impatient all at the same time. And, Anne, even with all that time, do you feel like you asked him everything you would have hoped for? Um, yeah. I mean, there is there is not a sense of, I wish I could have my father back because there was something that I really don't know. Um, there are certainly life is full of moments in which I wish I had my father back and, and something happens that would make him happy. Mm-hmm. You know, there Things happen that would make my father proud, and my father really loved an award, uh, you know, a yeah. ceremony, a nomination. My sister is up for a big job right now, and it would be exactly the kind of da- job that dad would want her to have. Those are the poignant moments. It, it isn't that I feel like there's something that should have been unearthed. Yeah, because I see the difference. You know, my dad died uh, when I was in my late 50s. And Kev's dad, my husband's dad, died when he was in his early 20s. Kevin oh. and I were married. And we have such—I uh, see the benefit— of having gotten to know my dad, with whom I was quite close. It sounds like you were with your dad. Yeah. And so I got to understand him as a man and as a father. Mm-hmm. But Kev, who didn't, and his dad was pretty reserved, and plus Kev was young, where you wouldn't necessarily have the life experience to ask questions in a informed way. It's a loss when you don't get to do that. Of course, because you're sort of frozen in that moment in time, yeah. forever. Well, I'm glad we both. I'm glad we both got to do that with our dads. And I think, I think that scene. 
there are so many great scenes in the book, but that scene to me just jumped off the page with warmth and emotion. And I didn't know uh, that your dad was dying while you were writing the book, but I, I was I was particularly touched by that scene. Well, thank you. You know, there's there's a moment um, towards the end of the book where Franny and her sister and her dad are all in the car, and the dad is saying, wait, no, you know, go this way, go this back way instead. Don't put the directions on your phone. I'm going to tell you how to get there. And she thinks, oh, you know, he's going to die, and all the ways to get to Torrance on the surface streets are going to go with him. Mm. Um, and there, yeah. there is that. It's just that loss of of the resource, mm-hmm. the resource material that is this close person who knows you. I feel that way so much with my sister um, because I feel like my sister is my witness in life and um, the person who was there for all of those events. Yeah, Anne Royfe in her book uh, Epilogue Mm -hmm. about losing her husband, who she had known since she was 14 or 16, and the book is about losing her husband. And at the end of the book, she's got a line which goes to the point about your sister, which really stayed with me. And she said that what she hadn't realized she would lose with her husband passing, is her 14-year-old self. Yeah. Because that's stored in the other people that are, you know, when you're talking to your sister and talking about something, she is thinking of your perspective in the whole you, right, from the time you were like a little kid. Right. And when that's gone, that's a, that's a hole. Well, yeah, I always refer to my sister as my external hard drive. Yeah. <laughs> where I've it's where I've stored you know all of the really salient yeah. memories of my life how that, that's that's a great line I like that may she outlive me <laughs> so uh, so let's move over because I, I there's a couple of other topics I want to get to and hopefully we've given everybody enough uh, ammunition to know that they have to read Commonwealth uh, before yeah. they read any other book, and they will be well rewarded. But speaking about reading a book, have you changed how you read oh. as a bookseller? Because I found it totally changed the way I, I read. How, what's it done for you? I was thinking about this the other day and thinking, this is something that I should really write about at some point. Um, because before I had the bookstore, I read Henry James. You know, I, I read classics. I read to improve my mind. I read to improve my writing. I read because um, I read like a student. I, I was always trying to learn and better myself and read the classics. And I read contemporary novels, but most of the contemporary novels I read were written by my friends. Um and now I read almost entirely contemporary books, and I read a lot more nonfiction. Um, I read indiscriminately. I read things that have not been published yet. If I read a book now that is six months old, it's a big deal. Right. Um, do, you, do you feel like like you almost don't need to pick it up because it's, it's sort of done? Somebody already read it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it doesn't need me anymore. Um, we have a first editions club at Parnassus, so I'm constantly looking for what book in July. I mean, I think at this point we're set through June. Yeah. So now I'm really looking for July books. I'm looking for August books. I know what we're going to pick in September. 
but I think that I read almost like I read the newspaper in that I'm, I'm reading to find out what's going on in the culture and, and where we are in the world as seen through the lens of art, which is extremely different. It's very, very present tense. And also, you know, I get so many books, and this has always been true because people want me to blurb things. Now I get them also through the bookstore. So, I mean, I... You must feel assaulted sometimes. Yeah. Um, but I'm more forgiving in a way than I used to be, which doesn't mean that I read books that I don't like. But there are books now that I will read all the way to the end and think, you know, that's not for me. That's not my cup of tea. But I can see that it's a really good book. It's a valuable, important, well-done book. Just for not another my reader. Yeah. And and that didn't used to be the case. I mean, it was like, if it wasn't for me, I wasn't interested in it. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. The other thing that I found, I wonder if it's been true for you, I finish less books. Well, you know, because, again, I've always had all of the blurb situation. Um, I have long been good at not finishing books. Yeah. And... Um, and really being able to tell in a, I mean, a shockingly few number of pages whether or not it's something I want to read. And um, I have no compunction to finish something. Um, and the books that enrage me, and this doesn't happen all that often, are the books that I am positive that I love. And I read all the way to the end, and then I don't. Mm. And then I am I am furious about those books uh, because I'm usually a really good judge of when to leave the party, interesting, right? no, interesting. when to bail out. But if if I just think something is brilliant, and I'm telling my friends, I'm telling people in the bookstore, I'm reading this book, I love it, and then I finish it, and I don't love it. That's awful. Well, one of the ways in which I've become acutely aware of that is there have been instances where I've gotten halfway through a book. I've got my dear reader, which is the letter I write once a month mm -hmm. uh, from the bookstore of books I'm loving, and I need to get it out. So I, do, I always say I'm reading and not read, but then I am – I hadn't thought of elevating it to enraged, <laughs> but I feel – bombed when the book then falls apart, Yeah, where the beginning half was so promising, because I used to worry about the opposite. Like I wasn't giving a book enough pages, you know, that it used to be I'd give it 75, then I gave it 50, then I gave it 25, and then sometimes I'll read two pages and I'll say, right. oh, this guy just doesn't have it. Right. And that, you know, really in two pages you decided that? But that doesn't you, make honestly, sense. Honestly, if I had an experience recently with a galley that, uh, of a book that was that was much talked about last year. I don't I know about three people who actually read it, but it was a great huge first novel that was much discussed. Yeah. And before it was published, a very very close friend who is a big time novelist said to me, and the kind of person who's still reading Henry James, she said, "I got this galley. I love this book. You will love this book." And so I I got it and I read 75 pages and I said to my friend, 
I understand why you think this is a good book. This person is a good writer. It is not my thing. And I've already read way more of it than I would have normally, but I am getting no traction. And she said to me, oh, no, it doesn't kick in until page 200. Right. And I said... I think I know which book this is. We won't mention the title. Um, Three letters. Um, I said I, that's in that it invalidates right a book that doesn't kick in until page two hundred is not a good book. Yeah, it's just not a book that I'm going to read or I'm going to recommend. That's ridiculous. You know, that's like saying you're going to have somebody over for dinner and after they've had a three crummy appetite and, and the dinner, but a dessert, <laughs> you're going to like that person. Right. No. So speaking about liking books, one of the segments we do on the show that people love is I invite booksellers around the country uh, to talk about what's on their front table because that is what distinguishes us as independent booksellers. We're not getting paid to put it on the front table. We put it there because it looks good or because we love it or because we think people will be interested in it. So I'm interested in hearing about what's on your front table. Well, George Saunders was in the store on Friday. Oh, God, I'm so jealous. You should be. (laughs) I'm Uh, really jealous. He was unbelievable. Yeah. And we would normally have moved an event like that to a bigger venue and all of the regular venues, we were already booked. And so we had it in the store and people were in there like sardines. It was really fun. I mean, when you really smash them into the store, there's a great feeling of celebration and he did such a wonderful job, but I love that book. That is a book that I got the galley for that book last May. And they kept pushing back the pub date, which all had to do with the election. So I feel like I've been dying for that book to come out for such a long time. So let me ask you a question about it. So it's Lincoln and the Bardo, and it's by George Saunders, who's won awards for his short story collections. And I, too, read it early, early. Uh, It it was one of our uh, signed first editions. It's a very complicated, unusual format. Yes. So talking about a book that you have to get to page 200, what advice do you give readers before they begin that book so that they appreciate the format of the book and the flow of it? You know, I may be wrong about this, but I am betting that Somebody who goes to buy a copy of Lincoln at the Bardo has read George Saunders before. Um, that this is a book. I think where, that's right. Where his fans are coming in. So to read and understand Lincoln at the Bardo, I would say you've got to have had a couple of George Saunders short stories mm-hmm. under your belt, because it's a matter of sensibility and the and the ability to say, oh well, you know that's. That's George. That's the way he writes. Yeah, it's a bunch of dead people in a cemetery talking. They're stuck between their life and death. That's exactly the kind of thing that George would be interested in with a bunch of crazy footnotes. Um, So that actually doesn't concern me so much for him. Interestingly, though, where that does concern me was with Colson Whitehead's book, Underground Railroad, which was a book that I loved. and I have been reading Colson since The Intuitionist, which exactly. it still is one of my all-time favorite books. Um, but because that book was an Oprah pick, Underground Railroad, and there was the huge standalone segment of it in The Times, 
you have a whole lot of people coming to Underground Railroad as the first thing they've ever read by Colson Whitehead. And I think that would be much harder than coming to Lincoln at the Bardo with a few George Saunders stories under your belt. Does that make any sense? Yeah, that's where I hadn't thought about it that way because I loved both books. George Saunders' 10th of December could be the book I would take to a deserted island. Oh, wow. Um, and it's short. Yeah. Hopefully well, you wouldn't be there long. I'd, yeah, I'd need a lot of books. <laughs> uh, but I just think he is so gifted and quirky and sardonic and, uh, But I think that's, you know, I'm going to pay attention to that in a little bit of a different way, because clearly, if I think about the number of copies we sold of Underground Railroad, that way exceeded anything we had sold of a previous Colson Whitehead book. Oh, my gosh. But Lincoln and the Bardo, at least at this moment, has not outsold 10th of December. Right, right. And, you know, there, Underground Railroad is such a tough book. And and not only is it emotionally really brutal, as well it should be, but there's a moment when the escaped slave gets on an elevator in a 10-story building and says, I've never been in a 10-story building before. Exactly. And if you haven't read Colson Whitehead, you'd be like, what? <laughs> what? What's going on here? So I, I worry about those readers more than I worry about George Saunders. So, Anne, I'll close with a couple of things. One is I hope we can get you back on the show because we didn't get to any number of topics. But let's end on something that feels very uh, sexy and Hollywood to me. So Bel Canto is going to be a movie with Julianne Moore. Do I have that right? You do. So how'd that come about? I think Julianne Moore is fantastic. Yeah. I hope it is a terrific movie, but I don't have anything to do with it at all. Yeah. You're on to Mother Teresa, I understand. Yeah, I am on to Mother Teresa. And will your new book be nonfiction or fiction? No, no it actually has almost nothing to do with Mother Teresa. She she probably won't even make an appearance, um, but that is what I am reading to do uh, research for the book that I'm writing now. I can't wait. Well, Anne, will you, you come back on? I will, and next time we'll just talk about other people's books. <laughs> Anne, thanks so much, and congratulations on the success of Commonwealth. I just think every time I read one of your books, and I've read every one, oh my gosh. I, I think, oh my God, this is her best book. No, this is her best book. They're just all great. The The book I, I hope, uh, if people haven't read This is the Story of a Happy Marriage, they need to read that. They need to read Commonwealth. And if they haven't read your old books, they should take all your books to a deserted island and read them. And I did the audio for Happy Marriage. So, if oh, you, I didn't know that. If you get it in audio, I'll read it to you. <laughs> yeah. And thanks so much. Thanks, Roxanne. Take care. For a complete list of all the books in today's episode, including Ann Patchett's Commonwealth, just go to bookpodcast.com. Please subscribe to Just the Right Book on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. Also, please email us at info at justtherightbookpodcast.com. Just the Right Book podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Our original music was created by Mark Berman. Our producer is Christina Torres. And our sound engineer is Pat Keogh. Thank you all for listening.